KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the Cully Neighborhood Farmers Market. This is a weekly event at 5011 Northeast 42nd Avenue at Alberta Street in Portland. The market features local farmers and businesses, and this Thursday, August 8th, Flamboyant will be performing with hula hoops, spinning plates, bucket silts, spinning sticks, and more circus fun. Again, that's the Cully Neighborhood Farmers Market, Thursday, August 8th from 4 to 8 p.m. at 5011 Northeast 42nd Avenue at Alberta Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the home page under Community Events. This is KBOO Portland. The time now is 10 o'clock. The Heather McCoy Show will return next week, but today, right now, we're going to have flashpoints with Dennis Bernstein. He'll be discussing cannabis legalization in California. At 11, it's Between the Covers. David Naiman interviews Alvia Wilk, author of Oval. And at 11.30, it's Words and Pictures. SW Concert speaks with Matt Bores, founder of the NIB based in, or- in Portland. Don't forget you can hear all of these programs after they air at kboo.fm or on iTunes or Google Play. All these KBOO programs are made possible by member support. If you'd like to become a member, go to kboo.fm or use our mobile app and click on Donate. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, we begin our multi-part series on cannabis in California, the rollout, the current ups and downs, and the multiple impacts of extreme tax, packaging, and government microcontrol. I'm Dennis Bernstein, again with Miguel Gabilo Molina, all this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We now commence a multi-part series on marijuana in California, the rollout, as we said. And we're going to throw it now to our studios in Santa Rosa at the Peace Center. Welcome to the new Flashunda 420 podcast in collaboration with Chad Ray and Emerald TV. My name is Dennis Bernstein. To my right here is Miguel Gabriela Molina. To my left is Sarah Schrader. And this begins a series that goes deep into what's happening in California, what's happening with cannabis, what's happening with medicinal cannabis. So welcome, everybody. It's an honor to be here. And uh, Miguel, uh, this is essentially your conception. Tell us what we're trying to do here. Well, we're here as, as flashpoints of Pacifica. Uh, uh, a while back, I got contacted by Chad Ray and in communication with Sarah Schrader uh, about this idea, about a podcast and being involved. So after weeks, we finally got to this point today. So it's an exciting moment. We're about to launch something which is desperately needed. And like yourself, we're honored and feel privileged to be part of this. Well, you know, Sarah Schrader is here with us, and it's always an honor to be with her. Sarah knows more about this 
a subject than perhaps anybody I know. Let me tell you just a little bit about her. She's the chair of the Sonoma chapter of Americans for Safe Access. She has sat on the Cannabis Advisory uh, Group, which began when? Just recently? It began two years ago, and unfortunately sunset just last month. We were developed and uh, by the Board of Supervisors in Sonoma County to work on cannabis policy recommendations and had our last meeting last month. Today, we've got two more guests with us. We've got Jana Adams and uh, Vicki Lynn. Both of them are caregivers for their daughters who are using cannabis for their own medical healing journey. And together, we're organizing an event called Medical Cannabis for Neurological Conditions Symposium. And so I brought both of them here today to talk a little bit more about what inspired us to put this together, as well as the details of who's going to be coming to our event, which is on August 10th here in Santa Rosa. Yeah, and let's just remind people that this is an incredibly important gathering that people should know about, uh, Medicinal Cannabis for Neurological Conditions Symposium. You're going to learn a lot more about that in the next minutes, uh, but we'll say more about this. It's happening Saturday, August 10th, 10 a.m. to 2.30 p.m., very important uh, gathering. So why don't you, uh, again, bring in our guests, and let's get into the depth here. What are we talking about? What is the struggle? What's new? What do we need to know about now in terms of medicinal cannabis and access to the safest forms of what we use? So last year, I had the pleasure of meeting Jenna Adams when she was challenging the Rincon Valley School District for her daughter's cannabis access in her schools. I think most of us feel that now that we have legalization passed, we have accomplished many of our goals, but we don't realize that there are still hurdles for access. And so at the time, her daughter had initially gone to preschool and the school district had not considered it an issue because it was a private preschool. And now that her daughter was entering kindergarten, she challenged the school district to make sure that her daughter um, had the same public education that was available for any other children. And I'll let Jana share more about her story about what that challenge looked like and some of the things that she tried beforehand before she found cannabis to be helpful. Yeah, so my daughter, Brooke, started preschool, but she should have started public preschool. But because of her cannabis access, she uses cannabis for uh, seizures to stop seizures like an emergency medication and so she really can't go anywhere without it and um, I knew that she couldn't attend public school without it and so we challenged them at the time she was entering preschool but they agreed to pay for her private preschool and hoped that we could work something else out by the time that she was in kindergarten. Two years passed attending the preschool and we were no further on any kind of resolution, and so we had to move forward with making a judgment call by someone else. Can I ask you to just back up a little bit and mm-hmm. talk a little bit about how you discovered that there might be important possibilities with medicinal marijuana that could solve uh, some of the th- problems that traditional medicine wasn't dealing with? Could you share some of that story? So my daughter's first had her first seizure at three months old. We later found out she has a genetic disorder called Dravet syndrome, which is basically intractable seizures, not wanting to stop with pharmaceuticals. She tried multiple medications all together. She was on four different medications at one time. She was still having seizures. They said something's going to work, nothing was working. They wanted to add another medication and pretty much she wasn't able to do a lot medicated with so many drugs under the age of one. Most of the medications say don't even start them until two years old, but they had no other options, and so they just kept adding medications. We also tried the ketogenic diet, which is known to help with epilepsy, seizures. That failed also. They, at the time, were going through a trial 
um, at UCSF and she didn't qualify because she wasn't having enough seizures to show the trial was working. And that uh, pharmaceutical actually just passed this last year as, and, and it's known as Epidiolex and it's CBD only. It's an isolate and actually her rescue medication is THC. So even if we would have gotten to the trial, I don't feel like it would have helped her the way that it's helped now. Jana, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what your experience was before finding cannabis, what some of those symptoms were like, and what were some of those uh, prescriptions that were given for your daughter? Can you tell us a little bit about um, some of those uh, experiments that you've had during that time? Sure. So just before she turned one, she was on three medications, and then she got sick and was hospitalized for a week. And during that hospitalization, she coded red. She was intubated. I mean, she... I was right there and not able to help her, and neither were the doctors that were treating her. Um, basically, when she was given those rescue medications, it would knock out her breathing, and so she could no longer breathe on her own, let alone continuing to have seizures at the same time. And how did you find cannabis to be a potential solution for her? I was introduced to Jason David, who's from Jaden's Juice, and that's where we started our journey. Um, he had provided an educational forum for others to learn from specialists. And I went down to Modesto just after her release of the hospital at that time and said, you know what, this has got to be something I need to look into. So these stories are all too familiar with many different mothers that are trying to find the right answers for their children with pediatric conditions. And we have a lot of families that have ended up being refugees where they've had to go from state to state in order to get that access. Uh, Vicki Lynn is one of these families that has come here to California. She's been here for four years and her daughter's a little bit older. She's 24 now, but she has a very similar experience of uh, being a parent and not knowing what to do when your child is literally um, at risk in front of you. And it's a got to be such a difficult decision for a parent to figure out what's going to be best for them. So maybe you can share a little bit more about your journey, Vicki? Yeah, I'd love to. So um, August the 11th uh, marks my fourth year here in California, and I'm super happy to be here. Um, our journey started when Aubrey was five years old. She was a normal child, um, ballet and soccer and all of the wonderful things that little kids do in Alabama. Um, and she went in for her MMR booster shot and um, uh, came out with uh, acute dissemination encephalomyelitis. Of course, this conversation is not about vaccines, uh, but that is what kicked it off. And uh, after two successions of 21 days of uh, leaky brain, uh, they determined that she uh, was going to be okay, but uh, at age seven was diagnosed with uh, epilepsy, and we they started her on her first round of um, anti-epileptic drugs. Um, Aubrey was, we, she went through uh, several anti-epileptic drugs before they decided to put her through the surgery program. So we being the good, you know, parents from Alabama following the medical uh, advice, went and allowed them to do the resection of her brain, uh, not once but twice, and uh, both of those surgeries were um, catastrophic. Uh, Aubrey had her first seizure post-surgery um, in ICU both times, and the second time uh, they caused quite a bit of damage. Um, so with the damage from the surgeries, the surgery team turned us back over to neurology where Aubrey went through 17 different anti-epileptic drugs during this time, and none of them worked. And at age 18, when puberty, puberty hit, uh, it was a game changer, and her uh, seizures went from partial complex to uh, long um, tonic-clonic 
grand mal seizures that were deadly and nothing could stop them and Aubrey at age 18 uh, went out with a friend and smoked pot for the first time in Alabama not even good cannabis it was Alabama cannabis <laughs> did it have seeds in it or? <laughs> and I noticed a difference um, not in the seizure activity but I definitely noticed that she was more relaxed she was giggling which was different from her uh, uh, suicidal just put me in a corner and somebody in this please um, uh, and, and she had a little bit of an appetite and I was like what's going on with you and uh, she finally admitted that she was um, smoking and so this was uh, 20, 2013 and so I began my journey of uh, selling my house and everything that I owned and pulling up my I hate to say 50 root, 50 years of roots in the southern uh, United States and moving to California uh, I didn't know anybody here I had one contact and he made oil <laughs> so, so I um, landed uh, in Sonoma County um, on a 10-day Airbnb trip. I treated it like it was a vacation. I brought my uh, business with me, and I thought, you know, this is going to be great. And uh, you know what? It has been great. <laughs> Can I ask you to talk about a little bit more about that greatness? Yeah. How has this uh, encouraged, helped to change your relationship with your daughter and handset sure talk about that? absolutely so when we landed uh, by this time she's 20 and uh, we not knowing that I had landed in the Emerald Triangle I didn't even know what Emerald Triangle was uh, but not knowing that we had landed in the Emerald Triangle <laughs> I was uh, traveling to um, Tuolumne County once a month to go get um, THCA oil from a gentleman that I had met through Facebook and so I would go there once a month and get my oil and come back to Sonoma County and um, it worked fine for her for a while, but she was still seizing through the THCA oil. It did help, but she was drinking bottles of THCA oil. Um, but she was able to get off the Depakote, um, which was fantastic. Um, so now she was down to just one anti-epileptic drug and the THCA, and it wasn't quite holding. Um, some of the game changers that we had were finding out that we were here and that just about everybody grew and produced some of the finest cannabis probably in the United States. And so um, Aubrey's, we went from THCA to 18 to 1 uh, by Care by Design. And that was helpful. I saw definite cognitive uh, um, improvement with her, but still there was a lot of seizures. And then she went to 4 to 1. So adding the THC, like you did, was a game changer. What an amazing story. And uh, I think there are probably a lot of people who have had similar kinds of experiences uh, and will learn a lot from that beautiful experience. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We're here with Sarah Schrader. This is a new podcast, also co-hosted by my brother here, Miguel Gabriela Molina. Uh, this is a question I have uh, for you, Sarah. Uh, and it's something that I've picked up from people out there that use uh, cannabis oils. Uh, from you know medical reasons purposes uh, with the whole big ag coming in uh, this year we saw uh, recreational adult use uh, you know finally accepted here in California and it's rampant in some ways uh, sometimes there's a little confusion uh, when people people have told me I've gone to dispensaries and some dispensaries I don't they don't even know what is medical grade you know and what is uh, you know uh, 
uh, adult use, you know, marijuana, which is a little different. Uh, have you noticed anything or heard anything about that sort of like, you know, gray area that's happening with this introduction of adult use? So the biggest change has been the uh, cooperatives and collective sunsetting. And a lot of patients were getting their uh, cannabis from being a part of a group of patients working together. And that model doesn't exist anymore. Through the dispensaries, the, what's available for adult use and what's available for legalization is essentially the same. There are special concentrated that uh, products that carry high dosages that are only available for medical cannabis patients. And so those dosaging include concentrates over 1,000 milligrams, edibles over 100 milligrams, more than eight um, grams of, con or up to eight grams of concentrates, uh, because you can only buy uh, eight grams as an adult user. And then we also have compassion programs. Uh, compassion programs are only available through uh, medical programs, which means you need to go out and get a state ID, which formerly used to be voluntary. So in order to get free medicine now, we're now relying on the dispensaries instead of the collectives. And when they're paying the taxes on it and they're paying to produce that product, there's less compassion available for patients that are low income as far as affordability. So that's been the biggest change that I've seen is a reduction of the low income programs that are available for patients that cannot afford to buy the amount of medicine that might be needed for their quality of life. Well, you know, talking about, you just touched upon, uh, you know, the, the cost involved. And, and is there a difference? You know, like, for instance, you, Vicky, you went out and had to buy all these oils, all that stuff. Uh, do you find it that there's a price difference, you know, between recreational and medical use? So if you have a state card, you are given a bit of a discount. But if your child or if you as a patient are on... 500 milligrams of anything a day, um, it's unsustainable. So um, it is a problem. And prior to legalization, there were compassion programs that were in operation and doing quite well. And to be honest with you, we were gifted just about every drop of oil through Care by Design and um, Emerald Farms. But now that uh, that the legalization has happened. It left the compassion got sucked right out of the state. It was miserable to watch. And quite frankly, um, patients, thankfully, in the state of California, we can still grow our own. And if you know how to, you can process it. However, if you've got a baby or a child like Jana's, there's no way that I would process my own. Because no the way. testing results are really important. When you're dealing with a child that's very small, what you don't want to do is uh, give them a dose that's more than a micro dose because they could experience lethargic symptoms that go with that. I once talked to a mother that uh, before regulations passed had to retest everything that she purchased before she gave it to her child because her child was only 18 months old. So it's really important now that we have these new regulations that we know the safety of these products and we know the accurate dosaging because prior to this, that was a little bit unclear. You are listening to a brand new podcast, and we welcome you. This is a production of Flash Unda on Pacifica Radio. Uh, this is the 420 podcast in collaboration with Chad Ray and Emerald TV. Uh, and we're uh, talking in anticipation of the Medical Cannabis for Neurological Conditions Symposium. Uh, this is coming up uh, Saturday, August 10th. For those, for those of you who are uh, in uh, Northern California uh, and in the Santa Rosa, San Francisco area, you might want to check this out. Uh, and Sarah, let me uh, ask you to say a little bit more about the conference and Dr. Bonnie Goldstein. 
So I think all of us are very sympathetic to the fact that mothers that are in this condition um, need more education and they need trustworthy, reliable sources. And so Jana was really the inspiration for this event. She has been uh, coordinating with the local chapter and she personally invited her daughter's doctor here from Southern California, Dr. Bonnie Goldstein. We also have Dr. Uh, Bao Lee that will be joining us. Uh, we have also added attorney Joe Rogway who fought Jana Adams' case pro bono. He'll be talking to us about how to be safe legally as pediatric caregivers. Um, Project CBD has also been involved, and so Martin Lee will be speaking, as well as a nonprofit from Southern California, Whole Plant Access for Cannabis, or for autism. So if you don't mind sharing a little bit more about how you coordinated these groups and got us all together to make this event happen. Yeah. So uh, Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, um, I searched out who the best people were and who to get so that I'd have the knowledge to help my daughter. And when I found her, she had a two-year waiting list um, because there's not a lot of people out there that actually know how it works, why it works, and how you, it can help your, your child. And so um, last year was the first time we were able to see her. And um, once I met with her, I knew that she had a lot of the answers that I had been searching for. And I like to understand how the medication works, why it works before I give it to my daughter. And so she was able to explain that to me in layman terms <laughs> to understand. Um, and I knew after participating in this kind of forum that was offered to me when I was looking from Jason David, I wanted to give back to, to the people that are still searching. And so I had asked her to come up here and she loves it up here. And so it was just a matter of finding the right time to get her up here. Could you talk a little bit more about the, the, the disruptive uh, impact sort of the traditional medical field could have on seeking this extraordinary help uh, uh, because you've been really abandoned and because the uh, traditional Western medicine can't speak to some of these difficult issues? Yes. So um, after I had gotten that information, my daughter was about 14 months old. We, we were able to get her medical card when she was 15 months old. Um, I had no support from her neurologist at the time. Um, and I said, well, we're going to try this anyways. Um, and so we were able to try that. And then we were able to find there was no rescue medications that were stopping her seizures. Typically, her seizures would be 45 minutes to her longest one of three hours. And that would be in the ER pumping her with any kind of drug they could get through the IV. And so uh, once I was able to find cannabis to stop it as a rescue medication, her seizures are stopping in two to three minutes. And still her neurologist at the time was not acknowledging that that was a significant difference. Um, we would be in the ER every five weeks having her ambulance because her seizures weren't stopping at home, even with diastat, which is the typical, or midazolam, uh, which is another rescue medication that other ch children are able to use at schools or at home. Um, those weren't working. And so there was, I feel there is no other rescue medication that can stop her seizures. And so actually, um, August is a great month because now it's three years since she's been to the ER for a prolonged seizure. Nice. Sarah, do you do you um, find that 
the Western medicine is beginning to open the door? Are doctors becoming a little bit more responsive, or is it still that hard wall? I think it depends a lot on what agency they're working for. If they're working for a hospital, they might be nervous about losing their job or what those repercussions are. But the more education that these doctors have, whether that be from researchers and studies or from hearing from their own patients, the more these doctors are opening up, uh, even conservative ones, to understand that this has been very beneficial for individuals without the side effects that exist from other, from other uh, prescriptions. When we look at the opioid epidemic, we have so many people that we're losing right now. And what we don't want to do is prevent those um, addictions. So for us to offer other options, I think people are starting to open up to these ideas. Um, I know that one of the uh, myths right now is that CBD is helping more than anything else, but I think that most of these mothers are finding that a regiment that includes more than just CBD. Before we leave, do you mind sharing a little bit more about what that regiment looks like for both of your daughters so people understand the synergistic effect of cannabis? Definitely. Actually, CBD we found alone and in high doses actually causes more seizures for her. And so she's actually now on CBD, CBDA, THC, THCA, and CBG. Um, to, to answer your question about the medical community as well, what I found with them is that they don't always know the, it's, it's not that they're not um, interested or curious here in California, it's that they don't know the interaction between the, the CBD and the pharmaceuticals. And that is a problem. Um, but going back to... Is that where research is needed now? Or is it just that they don't have the information? I don't think they have the information because as you may know or may not know, uh, even if studies could be conducted in the United States, they couldn't be shared. And it wasn't legal. And so much of the research, if a doctor really wanted to know, they would have to go out of their way and on their time and go and discover what, what it's all about and what the interactions are and which, what cannabinoids does, does what and which receptor does it sit on and which receptor does this uh, pharmaceutical sit on and are they fighting? And we don't know. And these are the issues that I came up with when my daughter is 24. So she could go behind my back if she wanted to and get a pharmaceutical if she felt like she needed it. But what I would see is that the pharmaceutical and the, the CBD would fight, not the THC just the CBD. I, we might learn more about why that is at the at the, at uh, the conference. So to be continued, uh, we are delighted. This is the first broadcast of a, a new um, podcast that we want to share with you. It's uh, produced by Flash Unda in collaboration with Chad Ray and Emerald TV. Uh, we've been here with Sarah Schrader. We're going to continue to be here, do this work. Miguel Gavila Molina. Uh, we thank Jana and Vicky for your candidness and for your information that I'm sure uh, many people are going to find uh, important and useful. I like that. Important and useful. Thank you all. And I'm going to leave by giving you the website for yes. the event. You can go to americansforsafeaccess.org slash events. There's also a Facebook page which has the event information, Medical Cannabis for Neurological Conditions Symposium, and Eventbrite has ticket sales as well. We'll be at the Luther Burbank Center for the Arts Saturday, August 10th from 10 to 2.30. And we hope that anyone with more interest in neurological conditions and pediatric conditions will join us that day. All right. Thanks. And welcome back to this new podcast uh, brought to you by Flashunda in conjunction with Chad Ray and EverillTV.com. My name is Dennis Bernstein here with Miguel Gavila Molina uh, and Sarah Schrader. And we continue uh, uh, delving deep into, well, marijuana, medicinal marijuana, the struggle to make safe uh, uh, 
and affordable uh, marijuana, medicinal marijuana available. We are going to be talking about a number of uh, issues, and I'm bringing in Sarah. So I had the pleasure of serving on the Cannabis Advisory Group here based in Sonoma County, which was a board of supervisors appointed a position. And I am inviting here today with me, Terry Garrett, who is co-chair of the advisory group, as well as Omar, who sat on the advisory group with us. Omar Figueroa is a local attorney, and both of them are here to talk about the accomplishments that we had during our time on the Cannabis Advisory, as well as what we didn't accomplish, and how that impacts our county. We've seen a lot of changes, financially related to our industry, and that has had a lot of trickle-down effect on some of our small businesses. Uh, Terry Garrett co-authored the Economic Impact Report here in Sonoma County, which really highlights what some of these changes look like for our community. And I also invited Joanna Cedar. She is a public affairs manager with Canacraft, and she also was very active at our meetings, and she's currently working on future hemp policy through the Department of Ag, uh, as they recently put together their own um, cannabis advisory, or I'm sorry, hemp advisory committee, and that is through Tony Linegar. Um, so welcome all of you for, uh, thank you for joining us. And maybe Omar, you can start by talking a little bit about the committee reports that we drafted and the work that it took to get us there. Well, um, there was definitely a lot of collaboration between some um, Sonoma County um, neighbors or neighborhood group members who we're very opposed to cannabis at first, and um, us, like we had you know, many meetings that did result in significant compromises and, and ability to find common ground. So I thought that was amazing that people who live in the same county can really, really look past their differences and find things to agree on. At the same time, I would say that the Sonoma County Cannabis Advisory Group was merely an advisory group, and we did not have any enforcement power we did not even have the power to make the supervisors listen to us. And we felt ignored by the supervisors in the end. They um, did not really attend the meetings, did not respond to the feedback that we gave them, did not adopt the recommendations or respond to the recommendations. So in a sense, it's they created this um, advisory group that you know, in retrospect, was more of a talking chamber that where they could kind of like put the discussion and contain it within that talking chamber. Omar, talk about how these multiple struggles have impacted the rollout and the ability for people to get safe and affordable medicinal marijuana, because there are some big problems here. Yes, I, I think the main problem is um, um, before Proposition 64 and the restrictive permitting system, um, we really had freely available cannabis to seriously ill patients. And that's because uh, people who were members of collectives and cooperatives always kept an eye out for the seriously ill patients in case they ever needed um, to justify their operations in a criminal court, in a criminal, as a defense, as a collective or cooperative defense. So, um, you know, it was definitely a time when if you were a seriously ill patient, you don't have to worry about coming up with money to get your medicine because there's always cultivators who were looking for patients like that um, to help. Now, with a new, um, I would say, regulated, commodified, industrialized system that we have now, 
those patients, the ones who need the access, who need the most cannabis of the highest quality and the greatest quantities the most, can't obtain it unless they can afford it. And it's not now commercially viable for these cannabis enterprises to uh, set aside uh, cannabis for these types of patients because it's not in the regs, it's not in the law, there are no incentives structurally for it. This is Dennis Bernstein here with Sarah Schrader and Miguel Gavila Molina. I want to uh, bring you into this, Joanna Cedar, uh, and have you respond to multiple struggles. Talk about uh, uh, life since the rollout. Well, we have a long history of cannabis cultivation in Sonoma County. In fact, we grow three crops in Sonoma County. One is cannabis, the other are wine grapes, and the final is livestock. And this is how we've, we've used our land over the last generation since, um, since we've shifted from apples and pears. And um, it's, it's very, really quite sad because at the end of 2017, we had an estimated 5,000 to 7,000 small farmers in Sonoma County that were, some of them diversified farmers, supplementing their income and providing medicine locally to the people who need it. And with the, um, with the development of both local and state regulations, um, zoning restrictions locally have essentially eradicated the legal Sonoma County cannabis business sector. And it's somewhat scary to watch what is happening both from the supply side and families that can no, that no longer have the income that cannabis brought them, but also um, in local, cannab local cannabis dispensaries, they're not able to sell local product. And so the economic, imp the economic impacts are really quite grave for our community. And, and looking at that whole question, yeah. thank you, Dennis. Uh, looking at the whole question of uh, you know access, particularly for let's say patients or elderly patients uh, that are on you know limited salaries, limited budgets themselves. I mean, with with the whole kind of phasing out of the compassion. You know, there used to be a, a, a clause where uh, dispensary groups would be giving out, you know, uh, cannabis, you know, to uh, patients that were low income or were on a limited budget themselves. But with the whole industrial uh, and, and adult use coming in, it's kind of just like pushed that away, disappeared. How can, what does that do with people that are in desperate need? Because now the dispensaries, I mean, there is no, seems to be no like uh, uniform uh, uh, pricing on the products. I mean, you go to one town and it's, you know, uh, it, it might be cost you so much. You go to another uh, district or another area, there's no conformity on pricing, you know, or even, uh, uh, you know, being able to, uh, look at the difference between commercial for adult use and medicinal. How, what has happened there? And, and what is going to happen now that it looks like big ag has taken over? And politicians uh, uh, that were convinced, uh, you know, I've seen a trend where a lot of politicos now are even, you know, uh, you know, buying stock in companies, some of these big agricultural, uh, I say corporations that are coming in. I mean, it's unbelievable to see how many politicians are now, you know, jumping into things and they're forgetting about the patients that need the medicine the most. 
So Terry Garrett is here with us from Mercy Wellness, and maybe he can share us with us a little bit about the trends of um, uh, purchasing uh, after the changes here with legalization. Yeah. Uh, so just to end cap what uh, Joanna was saying about the loss of income in Sonoma County, because this is kind of the starting point for what happened after that, uh, and I've go back about three years. So before Prop 64, uh, Sonoma County and this is kind of hard to figure out because there were no public records or third-party data or anything. We had to literally go out and just interview uh, people and then take some estimates from there. But uh, Rob and I, Rob Eiler uh, from SSU was the co-author on this report. We estimate that there was a loss of $1 billion in Sonoma County. And you have to... Um, you have to imagine this is the long tail uh, on a distribution curve going out of thousands of small family type growers that were maybe making a quarter million a year, half million a year gross, take home maybe a hundred thousand. This was supplemental income for a lot of folks. Uh, it was a second income. In some cases it was primary. But when you count that among thousands of people as opposed to a few hundred, it has a very far-reaching impact in the economy because this is a, Sonoma County is a $25 billion gross domestic product for the county. So a billion dollars is, you know, nearly 5% of that. And so if you think of the impact on a grocery store, on a restaurant, on a dry cleaner, on a, any, any small business that relies on that cash flow, uh, from that, that was the impact. Um, and so uh, that was the first part because what that did was decimate the supply chain. And through the report that we did, we recognized the value of each link in that supply chain. And the more those are uh, vibrant on a local market, the higher the economic returns to the community. There's a thing called a multiplier, an economic multiplier. And what that means is that if along the supply chain, cultivation starting, so the farmers first, uh, manufacturers and processors, distributors and retailers, the more we can verti vertically integrate locally so that we're growing, we're processing locally, we're distributing locally, and we're selling locally, it adds a premium to that, which uh, in the case of, if you look at a billion dollars, it can be as high as almost 300 million additional benefits come to the community when you do that. And so when the, uh, the why the regulations at the county level impacted that, and we should contrast that with some of the cities, like Santa Rosa has been giving a faster track, uh, well, faster relative <laughs> to most land use stuff, which is, you know, an eternity when you're waiting on it. Um, but at least they're more ambitious to establish a cannabis market versus the county, which is right the opposite. And just that patchwork of stuff left a lot of people sitting on some very valuable real estate that they just can't even use anymore. I mean, it's it's gone. So that drastically impacted. For Mercy, as an example, nearly 90% of our flour uh, was purchased in Sonoma County pre-2017. Today, it's probably not even 5%. That's the drastic change to go from 90% to about 5%. That shows up 
in loss of revenue for all these other local companies that aren't even cannabis companies. Joanna Sita, did you want to jump in here? Absolutely. And local electeds and business leaders have been essentially tone deaf to this argument over the last year and instead have looked at every downturn in Sonoma County, the Sonoma County economy as an a result of the fires and there was a really easy way and there is a really easy way for economic the economic development board and um, local leaders to track this and to start asking local businesses how much money or that they or how much of their business that was conducted in cash in 2017 evaporated in 2018 because that's a pretty good indication that those were cannabis dollars You're listening to a new podcast uh, brought to you by uh, Flashunda. Uh, This is the 420 podcast in collaboration with Chad Ray and EmeraldTV.com. And we're talking uh, uh, big time about uh, cannabis, the legalization, what has happened since the rollout, and all the things that are going on around that. I'm uh, joined also, honored to be joined by Sarah Schrader. Uh, she's the chair of Sonoma Chapter of Americans for Safe Access, and uh, well, she's on the uh, Cannabis Advisory Board, uh, or was, it just sunset out. Say a little bit more about what we've been listening to here, about the, the, the multiple struggles that people are facing since the rollout. And really, it does seem like we're, we're looking down the barrel of uh, sort of 7-Eleven corporate marijuana. Uh, that's the next step. I agree. I think the intent of the Sonoma County Cannabis Advisory Group was to get uh, input from the community on how to make this a successful program and how for we can transition our existing players to be a part of a legal program. Unfortunately, what we've created is hurdles that are so high that our small players can't get through anymore. And when we are disconnected from our politicians, when they are having private meetings as ad hocs and not sharing their minutes with us, and they're not participating in our minutes, then there's this disconnect between policy being made with government and policy being made by the community. And we need to see a better merge there. Uh, I think that all of us have a lot of expertise and guidance that we could have provided had they wanted to listen. And uh, you know, we have good intent to start our own equity programs, to lower the barriers of entry, to figure out how we can increase our economic benefits here in this community. But without working with us long term or without listening to this work, then that leaves us uh, in a place where we're we're stuck. Um, you know, I'm hopeful that the hemp group can do a little bit more through the Department of Ag because that's been one of the most successful departments that we've he- seen in Sonoma County. But ultimately, it's up to every community in their state to write policies that's going to work for them. Uh, equity programs need to be tailored to their own communities. Who do we want to see as permitted applicants in the future? And I think that all of us here in Sonoma are really saddened and disheartened by how many small farmers we've lost. So looking at ways that we can reduce the cost and uh, reduce the barriers of entry, uh, find financial programs to support these individuals are all ways that we're going to see success in the future. But right now, it really feels like the burdens are stacked up against us because it is um, uh, much easier for companies that have more money. Um, but I think that even our tax rates are impacting those players. I'd like to, maybe we can go around the horn here and talk about the what does the battle look like? What kinds of struggles are you all prepared, preparing to fight? What do you do uh, day by day to sort of rescue this uh, 
this beautiful, magical drug back from the corporatizers and the people who put all this, you know, who have forced all this incredible, uh, devastating packaging that's killing the environment. And really, the packages, you, d you need to hire a, uh, a, a second story crew to break into the packages. You can't, anybody who has problem uh, with, with arthritis and is trying to buy some medicine to feel better cannot open the freaking pack. I mean, every, uh, you know, I keep remembering, I, I keep thinking about this. Somebody pointed out once to me that uh, Coca-Cola is not a soda company. It's a bottling company. And they make money on the bottles. And, you know, here we go again. Let's kill the environment. Turn uh, this uh, beautiful potential into a corporate uh, uh, profit motive operation. Omar, you want to jump in? Let's, let's hear about your response to this. How do you fight back? Well, I guess, um, you know, there's many people are, are trying to navigate the regulations. And they're, first, they look for municipalities that are, have more business-friendly provisions. Uh, some ordinances, like um, the Sonoma County Ordinance, is not as amenable for operators as other cities within Sonoma County. So, for example, we see the city of Cotati, the city of Santa Rosa, city of Sebastopol um, are where the businesses are locating. And so they're basically looking for a friendly home and that requires um, being very aware of what the local jurisdiction policies are, what the tax rates are. Some local jurisdictions used to be um, business friendly, but then they enacted these tax rates like Oakland. And you know now the tax rate is killing the Oakland businesses Whereas back in the day, Oakland was a trailblazer jurisdiction and it was a great place to move. And the reason they were able to pass that ordinance and become trailblazers is because it was sweetened with this tax. And so now it's time to evolve beyond the tax. But what do you do? I guess for me as a lawyer, I help my clients try to navigate this. I wanna help people who work with cannabis who are actually interested in the plant and helping people with the plant and who actually use cannabis. Um, you know, like, would you ever buy wine from somebody who doesn't drink wine? You, or that to me is always like, um, you know, a red flag when I encounter somebody who purports to be interested in cannabis, but has no personal enthusiasm. I, I think from a, I kind of wear a few different hats, but speaking from the standpoint of uh, someone who has businesses along the supply chain. It is truly the uh, taxes that are exorbitant. We just collect it and pass it along, right? But the consumer pays it. And right now, at a retail level, roughly 49% of every dollar that comes in goes to taxes. And who pays for that is the consumer. Who makes the money? The government. Uh, but the government, uh, and as Rob and I illustrated in our economic impact report, the government isn't delivering the value on those taxes, either to the public nor to the businesses. They've disincentivized the public by adding 49% to the price of everything. Um, and so, and this is, uh, is multi-layered, so it's not just local, it's local, state, and federal all together the combination is creating a powerful disincentive for consumers to buy because it's jacked up the prices and we watched it on the day it converted 
uh, and for several months thereafter, our average sale was X number of dollars. And when the 15% excise tax kicked in, people still bought that amount, except they were getting 15% less product now because that was going to this excise tax. And, and so essentially, again, penalizing the supply chain uh, for having to keep their prices even lower and in some cases below cost just to uh, meet the demand and keep the prices so that people can actually afford to pay for it. So that's been one, so the biggest hurdle for us, first of all, is just navigating the influence and impact, negative impacts of taxes on this. The time, uh, and when you add taxes, it's compounded by the fact that we operate in cash. So now, I mean, if you can imagine what a half million dollars looks like in uh, bundles of 20s and 50s, putting that in a duffel bag and taking that to the IRS office in Santa Rosa, and just what a hassle that is. They have to have armed security uh, help you uh, get in the building to go to the place. I mean, this it's just it, it's so much labor, it's unbelievable. And I have some of the sales tax offices who receive it in cash, spend an entire day of four or five employees having to count it and verify the amounts. So these, that combined with the taxes, with onerous and unclear regulations uh, that change frequently, it causes massive problems just in trying to calculate where you are, the metric system, which is track or trace. They want to track the product from its origin all the way through to its final uh, sale. Uh, that requires software and it requires people to develop software uh, that integrates with the metric system. That takes forever, and it's not working just yet, and now we're expected to do it, and they started, uh, these are just decisions that are made at a government level. They started with retail to go into metric, which is totally crazy because retail is at the end of that, and all these products should have been tagged at the cultivation and manufacturing and distribution level before it ever gets to retail. Now we have to do all that work just because they didn't time that. So these are just problems, uh, and I'm not going to use the word incompetence, but it feels like that when you're on the re receiving end of just bad judgment, uh, of like not understanding the industry. And I think, as to Sarah's point, the industry folks uh, had that information available to inform people. This is how our industry works. This is how the business works. This is how the, the supply chain flows. Uh, but they didn't get a lot of that. Um, I won't say they didn't get any, because they obviously made some effort towards this. And uh, it's hard to, I, I have to say, it's uh, for those of us in the industry who are daily frustrated with this, it's hard to not use words like incompetence and boneheaded and all these kinds of things. And that's because that's what it feels like mid-times. I think that our governments have become very financially rapacious at this point, and particularly to this industry, which they did not treat the alcohol industry this way. Even to this day, alcohol in this state pays less than 40 cents a gallon excise tax, which comes out to such an infinitesimally small percent of 1%, so move a few decimals in on that of what the value of that product is compared to 15%, and that punishment is to the consumers. This question is for you, Terry, and Omar, and it deals with taxation and regulation. You brought up alcohol, Terry. You know, with alcohol, it's like standard. You go here, you go to San Diego, it's the same tax, it's the same regulations. Why is it that with cannabis, like, for instance, a dispensary here in the local area, 
will be charging you X amount in a tax. Now you go to the East Bay, it's a little different. It seems like, you know, not only counties, uh, but municipalities, all there's no conformity in like pricing, in taxation, regulation. Why is that? Everything else, you know, eventually gets conformed, you know, under this is a price for this amount. It, it involves everything, distribution, marketing, the whole package. Why is it so much different for this? Why haven't they decided, hey, the tax here in Santa Rosa is going to be the same in, in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, and elsewhere? Why haven't they figured that out yet? Um, well, I think, you know, if you do look at alcohol, though, I mean, there, there was a time, there was a transition time. You have wet and dry counties. You, you have local control. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think local control is, is pretty good. And in, in this instance, it had to do, though, more with... It wasn't like a black and white, either ban it or don't ban it. They allowed all of this. Well, if you're not going to ban it, write your own regulations that matches the population uh, desires in your in your locality. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think what's happened because those taxes are small in comparison. I mean, if you like, Katati has a three percent tax that they add onto it and some people are exempt from it uh, and don't have to pay it. That's not been a big barrier for us. It's the 15% and then the other sales tax and stuff like that that were onerous with that. I think that it's been a little bit of a problem for companies who have to straddle a lot of different localities and they have to prepare their stuff to match the localities. That becomes more of a business inconvenience uh, for sure. I, I think I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing though to have local control uh, over stuff like this, even if it is a little bit inconsistent. Uh, but that's just mine. If you look at the history of who has been in working in Sacramento, two of the biggest opponents against cannabis uh, before our regulations were League of Cities and Counties and the Police Chiefs Association. And so as we're drafting these regulations, I'm sure that a lot of negotiations are being made. And I am pretty confident that the cities and counties wanted to keep the power in their own jurisdictions to draft their own laws. That includes whether or not they're going to have a dispensary, distribution, manufacturing, what their tax rates are going to be. And so keep in mind with any bill that's being written, there's negotiation that happens. That way everyone can come in agreement to support it. So I really believe that it's the League of Cities and Counties that wanted to keep that power locally as opposed to having uniformity in the state. That makes things difficult for me as an educator, though. In the past, patients have been able to call me and I've been able to tell them, as long as you're less than eight ounces and stay off of federal property, uh, you know, you're safe. Uh, but when we're looking at regulations that are so much more complicated, I'm literally saying, give me your zip code and I'll get back to you in a week because every city and county has different rules about how many plants they're allowed to have, whether they're indoor or outdoor, whether they have to be locked up, whether they can be seen from public view. And what we've created is a very complicated educational process for even individuals to be able to follow the rules. Well, on the topic of taxes, you know, if somebody wants to donate medical cannabis to a patient, they have to pay the cultivation tax, the excise tax, and on top of that, the sales and use tax. And so there's currently some uh, legislation that is underway, SB 34, that would allow cannabis donations to be tax-free because of those tax um, penalties that are imposed on people giving away medical cannabis. It's no longer free to give away cannabis. Now it costs money to give away cannabis and greatly disincentivizes um, donations to patients who are in need. So it's really important that 
um, the law and you know this SB 34 is like slow to come corrective action that's taking forever to make its way through the legislature I can't believe it's taking this long it's like a, just like a no-brainer you know it, it shouldn't require first of all we shouldn't require SB 34 to correct you know wrong-headed law wrong-headed administrative decisions that basically wanted to provide uh, prohibit just giving away pot to people and so in the act of uh, prohibiting pot giveaways they didn't really think about the patients who need to get cannabis for free but um, you know there is I guess now legislative fix that's on the horizon SB 34 and I would encourage listeners and viewers to reach out to their local politicians and urge uh, co-sponsoring and supporting SB 34. Joanna, before we uh, wrap it up, you want to talk about your perspective and your ideas for solutions to some of these uh, uh, difficult struggles? Well, I think to start, it's really philosophical, and that is to get rid of the artificial barriers that have been erected by government because of their fear of cannabis. And those barriers take the form of zoning and jurisdictional matters that make it impossible for, in Sonoma County, for example, um, people who live on um, rural residential parcels to um, have a commercial cannabis business. Um, at, the, at, the, um, at the state level, the fact that we cannot transport yet THC products across state lines really puts our local cannabis businesses at a serious disadvantage. We grow some of the best flour in the world in Northern California, and people want it in other states, and it's really disappointing that we're not able to take advantage of that and to brand the Appalachian environment, the standards, the practices, the varietals, the legacy-producing regions that we have in, in Northern California. And and use that in other states. But I think really the elephant in the room is really going to be the development of hemp policy and legislation um, at every jurisdictional level on the planet. Right now, the way it stands is we are building a regulatory system that is separate and based on THC level. And that is going to be extraordinarily challenging to implement. It's going to be in, in challenging to enforce. And ultimately, it does not serve the patient and the consumer. So when I look at solutions, I look at three different jurisdictions that we need to work on solutions for. Every city and county has their own authority to put in their own rules, and so that means every small community needs to be working on having a dispensary or micro-businesses in their own backyard. Um, we can uh, create a lot of opportunity here, whether that's streamlining the process, creating equity programs, supporting small farmers, finding ways to lower the barrier of entry. That way people can start participating in their own backyards and in their own communities, and providing incentives for businesses that are doing things the way we want them to do. You know, rather than having things done as requirements, we should really be incentivizing the way we want to see uh, the cannabis programs work out. When it comes to the state, I think taxes are a huge burden. As long as it's cheaper for a cannabis patients to go to the unregulated market, then we have very little incentive for them to participate in the regulated one. So bringing those prices down seems to be through permit costs, seem to be through taxes. And I know that there's a lot of bills that are being 
considered in uh, Sacramento right now, but the three that are near and dear to my heart are AB 305, which is uh, the Ryan's Act. This would allow for use in hospitals. Uh, we also have AB 34, which Omar mentioned, which would allow for compassion to be issued without having to pay taxes on it. Um, and then we also have the schools bill, SB 223, which would allow for access in schools by caregivers. And certainly we'd like to see some amendments to those bills, but when we're looking at the intent of our initial Prop 215 law, we're sometimes forgetting the people that this was intended for. If people can't use it in the hospitals, if they can't use it as needed during their daily regiment while they're uh, getting their education, then uh, we're, we're forgetting those that we intended to help here in the beginning. Uh, that is the voice of uh, the host of this new podcast. We thank you so much, uh, Susan Trader. We're going to continue. Uh, this is a new podcast. Welcome, uh, as we say, to our 420 podcast. This is in collaboration with Chad Ray and EmeraldTV.com. And uh, we will continue uh, to cover this issue in a way uh, that makes sense and gives you a deeper look at what the multiple struggles are since the rollout of uh, legal medicinal marijuana in the state of California. The battle continues. KBOO Portland. The time now is ten or is eleven o'clock. I'm sorry. Coming up next on Between the Covers, David Naiman interviews Elvio Wilk, author of Oval. And at eleven thirty, it's Words and Pictures. SW Concert speaks with Matt Bores, founder of the NIB, based in Portland. The NIB is a publisher of political comics and graphic journalism. Don't forget that you can hear all of these programs after they air at KBOO.FM or on iTunes or Google Play. All of these KBU programs are made possible by member support. If you'd like to become a member, go to kboo.fm or use our mobile app and click on Donate. KBU Community Radio holds an open meeting concerning the operations and programming of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be conducted at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, unless otherwise noted. The Program Advisory Committee meets the second Tuesday of each month at 6 p.m. Please call 503-231-8032. 3-2 to verify if a BD 